Umagyanatimirandasya gyananjana salakaya chapsurumilitam yenatas mai sri gurave namaha sri gurivasna guru parampara ki jai sri mad bhagavad gita ki jai sri sri krishna arjuna ki jai namande so we're reading from the first chapter bhagavad gita's feeling and philosophy from the manuscript and we come to the last section of the Bhagavad Gita, beginning with verse 28, a series of verses spoken by Arjun that contain many things, but the real root of it, what it really stems from, is rationalization. The rationalization that is a product of material attachment causes us to maintain the attachment and rationalize why it's all right and proceed, but never go anywhere spiritually. And Krishna has expertly and wonderfully revealed to Arjuna just preceding this section the fact that he's attached, although Arjuna hasn't quite understood it. We heard how the first words spoken by Arjuna reveal the highest reach of the Bhagavad Gita and the reaction to that from Krishna and subsequently his first words take us to the lowest end of the spiritual spectrum where we must start and what we must pass through very first hurdle if we expect to ever come near that acme of theistic attainment the acme of theistic attainment is, of course, reaching a position of devotion and love for God that is so intense that God himself finds that worshipable. How did that come out? Because Arjuna asked Krishna to drive his chariot. He said, like, Rikshah, come, draw between the armies and let us see who's assembled here. And Krishna just did it. So to imagine, try to imagine being in a position of, and this is only possible by love, how can you take the all-powerful, infinite, absolute, and deal with that, approach that in such a way that it becomes subordinate to you? It's not possible logically. Therefore, we can understand it is by the force of love. Love transcends logic. Love knows no reason. Love is the greatest force. Knowledge is inside of love. When you love, you know what to do. You don't have to think about it. It's automatic. So this is the teaching of Bhagavad Gita, of course, bhakti. That it, love, devotion, bhakti, and unalloyed love in particular. This is the ideal. This is the worshipable ideal of God himself. God worships that love. He's subordinated by it. So he was forced by the love of Arjuna to be at his beck and call. But the fact that he's God, that remains. While he's driving the chariot of Arjuna, doing what Arjuna says, go here, drive it there, so forth. He does, but he still remains as God. And so he revealed that to us very nicely, very wonderfully, and to Arjuna by drawing the chariot up between the armies and stopping in front of Bhishma and Drona, who personified more than anyone else the attachments of Arjuna, 
and thus his reluctance to carry out the order of Krishna and fight in the battle. Bhishma, Drona, and Krishna said, all the Kurus. At that point he turned Arjun, he put him into an, into an illusion of family attachment. Arjun came to the battle to fight. It had been 12 years that they were in exile and they had been mistreated by Duryodhan. Their wife had been insulted. Their kingdom usurped. There were attempts to poison them, to burn them. Every act of aggression listed in the scripture, there are six, all of them were enacted against the Pandavas, orchestrated by Duryodhana. And after 12 years of exile, coming back and still trying to negotiate a settlement, Duryodhana would not have it, so forced to battle. So Arjun came there to fight. He didn't come for any other reason. Why did he stop? Why did he desist? And he's a warrior. Because Krishna made him see everyone as an extension of himself, as we see all those who we're attached to as extensions of ourself. They are our very self. We are what we are associated with, identified with, by attachment. That ego, material ego, that sense of self that we have, is a composite of our attachments. So the message of Bhagavad Gita is to dismantle all those attachments so that the authentic self can come out. Krishna put Arjuna into illusion. He said, see all the kurus here. He didn't say, see the, the sons of Dhritarashtra over here and our group over there. He said, oh, they're all, all your family members. He stopped the chair in front of Bhishma and Drona, Arjuna's grandfather, practically who raised him, and Drona, his teacher. And so... He was very attached to them. Without them, what was the meaning of Arjuna? So he's resisting what Krishna really wants him to do, which is to dismantle all of his, the composite of his material attachments so that he can know himself. And he reveals first his material attachments, brings them up, stops them in front of those two. And so we reach kind of the low point of the Bhagavad Gita. We just came from the high point. The devotee is conquering God by his love. And God is subordinating himself to the devotee. But the message is if we're to reach that high point, there's a major hurdle that we have to cross. It's only the first hurdle, but it's the major one. It's what gets us from the material plane to the spiritual plane. And then from there, we have to ascend within the spiritual plane. But that hurdle is our material attachments. So wonderfully... In the opening lines of Bhagavad Gita, in terms of Arjuna and Krishna's speech, we were given both the high reach of the Bhagavad Gita and the low end. The whole, we scan the entire spectrum of spiritual life in those three verses. We discuss this at some length. Now Arjuna begins to speak. He's confronted with his attachments, and they are devastating to him, this great warrior. Arjuna Uvacha, verse 28 to 30. Dishte mam svajanam krishna yuyutsam samupastitam sedanti mama gar gatrani mukham cha parishushyati vipatuscha sharire me romaharshascha jayate gandivam sramsate hastat tvakchaiva paridhayate 
नाचाशक्नोमि अवस्थातुं प्रमतिवाद चमे मना निमितानि चपश्चानि विपरितानि केशवा अर्जुन सर ओ कृष्ण इट इज नॉट इनसिग्निफिकेंट और विदाउट टेकिंग नोट ऑफ स्ट्रेसिंग दैट अर्जुन्स फर्स्ट रिएक्शन to what is his real dilemma his material attachments his first reaction to that verbal reaction is oh krishna this name krishna of all names throughout all the sacred scripture is given the most emphasis in terms of its efficacy for uh, its power of of deliverance there is no more complete nomenclature to the absolute truth for the absolute truth than krishna Throughout the scripture, we say uh, Rupa Goswami has given a nice statement. What is that? In the first line of his Namastikam, glories of the holy name Rupa Goswami, has said, "All the Vedic sounds, the root Vedic sounds, means the Shruti, the principal mool, principal Shruti. They are all shining like jewels in a necklace." shining in effulgence and casting that light on the on this one sound krishna shudamarsh once described the vedas as a, as a jungle of sound to sort it all out very difficult what is it all about this one sound krishna can answer that this is the idea it's significant that arjun's first response to being confronted with this dilemma is oh krishna the idea is that that krishna himself and more so his name vinatvam nam namino it is said the name and the named they're one this is the general idea of course with sound as in times gone by for example in relation to names then things were named and people were named such that the names corresponded more wholly with the person by describing his or her characteristics what's in a name so much is in a name don't give it out if we get his name we can find him <laughs> we can find everything about him if we know his name do you know his name did you get his name because <laughs> if you got the name you can find out everything this name this name krishna you can find out everything that could possibly be known about the absolute about existence about life such power in that name it can on the one side it is tarka brahma mahamantra iti sodasakam namnam kalikal mahasanasanam sadavede shudushite hari krishna hari krishna 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 hari 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 ram hari ram 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 hari hari in the upanishad it is mentioned like this this name has the power these 16 words hari krishna hari krishna 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 hari 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 ram hari ram 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 hari it's three but the combination is 16 sarvaveda shuddhushate again all the vedas are proclaiming this kalikalam ashanashanam iti sodasakam namnam this sodasakam nam this 16 sarvaveda shuddhushate all the scripture is saying kalikalam ashanashanam the kalamash of kali the problem the suffering the difficulty the obstacles of kali yug can nashanam all be destroyed arjuna is confronted with his problems our problems means our attachments 
because our attachments means a false identity that's created as, as a product of those false attachments. And if we don't know who we are, then how we can expect to be, find happiness? This whole problem is an identity crisis. So he says, oh, Krishna. Nam, the name of Krishna and Krishna are the same. Only one difference, the difference is the name is a more merciful manifestation of Krishna than Krishna himself. Because if we should offend the rupa of Krishna, the form, still the Nam will come to us. He will come in the form of his Nam. Kaliyuga Nam Rupi Krishna Avatar. Kaliyuga Krishna has come in the form of his name. So Arjuna sings, Oh Krishna, we should take note. This will solve all the problems. Simple as it is. But not so simple to understand. Therefore, 600 verses, 700 verses of Bhagavad Gita. 600 and, what is it now? 670 more verses to convince Arjuna. Just take shelter of Krishna, Sharanam. Sri Krishna, Sharanam, Amah. Sarva Dharmam, Prachya, Mamekam, Sharanam, Raja. Mamekam, Sharanam, Raja. Take shelter of me, take shelter of my name. Same. So the point is, we need to hear so much... Get so much shiksha, so much instruction. Understand the significance of that Krishna Nam. How far-reaching are its effects. How to properly take advantage and so forth. The more we have this kind of instruction, the more then we will be able to pay attention to the chanting. By paying attention to the chanting, we can have success. We cannot pay attention because we don't understand the importance of it. But if we keep hearing from a sadhu the importance from so many angles according to Shastra, from logic, from we see the practical example of that sadhu, his life is happy, fulfilled. So that good company and hearing from that sadhu, that is, we cannot just say, just chant Hare Krishna and forget the sadhu and the shiksha. I once was giving a very philosophical talk and one fellow said, Oh Maharaj, whatever happened to just chant Hare Krishna? It was too much to think about. I said, yes, why don't you just chant Hare Krishna? Do it. But you don't. <laughs> you don't just chant Hare Krishna. You do so many things. <laughs> You're busy with so many things that you think are important. Therefore, I'm speaking so much to tell you how important it is. And you have to think about it. You should understand, this is not for people that don't want to think. Bhagavad Gita is not for people who want somebody else to do everything for you. Get a guru, he'll do everything for me. That's not the kind of guru Krishna is. He's not that kind of guru. He wanted Arjuna to fully understand everything as far as possible, understand, and then act. He, want, he didn't just want him to fight. Krishna didn't want Arjuna to fight. He wanted Arjuna to understand what life's about, how it works. The fighting is of no consequence whatsoever. And now what did Krishna ask Arjuna at the end? So now do you understand? And he asked it in such a way that... We can understand, if we study that verse at the end, that he was prepared to explain the whole thing again. This is the duty of the guru. It's not the duty of the guru to give us a mantra and go away. Uh, every time we ask questions, why are you asking such a foolish question? Krishna is inviting Arjuna's inquiry, insisting on his inquiry. Arjuna is bold enough to ask and doubt. He's not intimidated. I'm in front of God. I shouldn't have any doubts. And with my guru, I shouldn't have any doubts or questions. If I ask it, other people will think something wrong with me. There is something wrong with us, and that's why we're here, in this kind of a setting, to get a cure. 
It's not for not thinking. It is for thinking, as far as you can think about it. We have so many books to read, so many explanations of those books, and according to our aptitude, we should try to understand those points, hear those, that will help us. This is called Sambandagyan, the proper conceptual orientation. Then, according to our conceptual orientation, we will act. If we get this conceptual orientation, we will begin to act naturally as a devotee, not in a forced way. Or That's what's stopping us from acting in terms of devotion. So we don't understand the significance. So, O oh Krishna, name is complete, yes, but 670 more verses are to follow of Krishna's explanation. O oh Krishna, seeing my own relatives preparing to fight with one another, my limbs are quivering and my body trembles. My mouth is drying up and my hair is bristling. My bogandiva is slipping from my hand and my skin burns. I'm unable to keep my composure and feel as though I'm losing my mind. O okay, Shiva, I can see only misfortune ahead. Arjuna is deluded. This is the power of material attachment. He was a great, noble warrior. But he's taken to fear here, trembling, quivering, losing his mind. These are the natural consequences of material attachment. And when it becomes a, the situation becomes acute, that we are confronted with those attachments, have to deal with them, then we come to such a condition of despair as Arjuna is coming. This chapter, as I've said repeatedly, is called Yoga of Despair, Vishada Yoga. We come to such a position of despair that there's a possibility we can rise above, make a whole turnabout in life, is what Arjuna will do here. It's interesting, worth noting, that the symptoms mentioned here are the symptoms of Arjuna's fear. Material attachment can only produce fear, fear and disgust. It fosters my identity crisis. So when we have an identity crisis, where am I? Who am I? And we cannot move freely in life. We're inhibited by that. We're fearful. We're anxious. So the symptoms that we find mentioned here, limbs quivering, hairs standing, bristling, and, and so forth, that they are also symptoms that are experienced by great devotees who chant, O oh Krishna, with full understanding and realization. This kind of transformation. Hair standing, tears falling from the eyes, quivering of the body, fainting in the swoon, and so forth. These things. Mahaprabhu said, Nayanam galala sudaraya, varanam gadgadaya rude agira, pulakarni chitam tapukara, tavanama gahani bhavishati. When will all these things come to decorate me, my body, when I chant the holy name? When will tears fall from my eyes? My body will quiver. My hairs will stand on end, understanding the significance of this chanting, that the Nam is non different than Krishna himself. Nartam prays, Gauranga bolite hove, pulaka shori, hori hori bolite nayane bhavani. All these, when all these symptoms will come, is our healthy aspiration. Chant and cry. Prabhupada said, chant and be happy. Now we're saying, chant and be unhappy. We should be unhappy that these symptoms that appear like unhappiness are not appearing in us. They appear like unhappiness. One fellow approached Sridhar Maharaj many years ago when he was involved in the preaching campaign for Gaudiya Mat, 
And the fellow said, I can't understand. Your ideal is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he's always crying. And contortions he's experiencing and so forth. Who would want that? Well, that's a difficult thing to to understand. But it said, Krishna Premar Adbhuta Charit. The Adbhuta Charit of Krishna Prem. The Adbhuta means wonderful. Charita means character. The wonderful character of Krishna Prem that Bhaya Visha Jalahoy outside is like poison, but inside is Anandamoy, like joy. How could it be otherwise? Material life is just the opposite. Outside it looks like joy. Just married. Beep, beep. <laughs> I saw a car <laughs> going by and I waved. They wanted everybody to wave. Just married. <laughs> but inside, oh, there may be so many problems. Relationships are problematic. So many ups and downs. Love of Krishna is no different. Exciting. Full of ups and downs. The river of Prem runs from side to side on the bank. Vipralamba Sambhog. Vipralamba Sambhog. Separation and union. Separation and union. Union is great. The separation is so bad. <laughs> as high as it gets, as low as it gets. In spiritual life, that is, the separation is so high because it makes the heart grow fonder for Krishna. So how can it be otherwise? Material life, as they say, is just the other side. They say, I thought it was a bowl of cherries, but it was the pits. <laughs> I, I heard someone say that. I thought it was appropriate. Uh, forgive me, but uh, yes, it's like uh, good on the outside looks good. Good packaging. This is especially the contribution of America to the world. Good packaging. But something missing inside is hollow. And spiritual life looks bad on the outside. I will have to give up this. I will have to change that. Leave this behind. It looks bad, but it's inside it's very nice. Even the sadhaka's life has solace. Because the, even the sadhaka's life has solace because the sadhaka knows, he has a sense, I'm doing the right thing. And there's solace in that. My life might not be ecstatic, but this is the right thing. It will come in time. And when will it come? When I start to whine, to lament for that, when will it come? Then it will come very quickly. Mahaprabhu said, Nayanam Galada Shuddha. When will it come? When will these come? This, these ornaments of ecstasy come to decorate me when I'm chanting Hare Krishna. Why it doesn't come? Tadashma Sharam Hridayam Bhutedam Yadgrihamanayar Harinamadihai Repeatedly chanting Harinam, but no... No vikar, no transformation is coming. Kampa shupulakadaya, nitre kampa. No transformation is coming. Sasta satvika vikar is not coming. Because my chanting is offensive. Why is my chanting offensive? Because I'm not paying attention. Why am I not paying attention? Because I'm not hearing repeatedly, again and again, and keeping good company, being pushed in this way. If we chant properly, all this transformation will come. And chant properly means This bending you have to do. You need to bend down. Transform your body in that way. Humbly. Krishna's Kabiraj Goswami said, This verse of Mahaprabhu, we should be more humble than a blade of grass, this verse said. You should wear that like a garland around your neck and chant Hare Krishna. Then he will call you progress. Then these symptoms of ecstasy will come in time. So the low end is like the high end. 
Tamogun is like Satogun in some respects. Monkeys are in Tamogun and they live in the forest. They eat only fruits, not concerned with the clothes. Rishis are also in the forest, eating only fruits, wearing only loincloth. One is in a Satvaguna, one is in Tamaguna. Hippies are detached. They used to be in a hippie culture. Detached. <laughs> detached. They should be attached. They would be better. <laughs> detached. Giving up. Giving up taking a bath, even. It was uh, fashionable in, in those times. So, proper detachment. That's required. So, as if we go far enough left, it looks like right, so... Low end of material life has some correspondence with the high end of spiritual life. So these symptoms of ecstasy coming in the highest devotees, they're coming in the lowest stage of material attachment also. Different things can cause the, the body to transform in similar ways. If you know something about medical science. Then. It is said that the tears that come from material anxiety, they are cold. And those that come from spiritual ecstasy, they are hot. Other way around, excuse me. The gland is giving the drops and so forth, but a different thing is causing that. Difficult to understand spiritual life. On the outside, it looks very poisonous, terrible. How can I swallow that pill? No. What will become of me? But on the inside, if one who does, it's very satisfying. So here Arjuna is showing all types of symptoms of fear, and his whole physical being of a warrior, so powerful, is completely crippled by his material attachment. It's not that he lost any muscles or anything, but he couldn't flex them, he couldn't move forward, because he was faced with the, with the task, with the duty at, at hand to slay his material attachments. In other words, to slay, to dismantle his material attachments so that his self could come out. And they were Bhishma and Drona and... That's what they were on one level. But on a higher metaphysical level, they were his attachments. To see the power of this, what it can do to, to even a great person, how it can degrade us. And now how the mind, we'll hear how the mind comes into play. We hear what's happening to his body. He can't practically go forward. So in order to go forward, either to do the work at hand or to try to find a good reason why not to. And he's going to speak so many wonderful valid points but as Krishna will tell him when he's done in the second chapter it's all nonsense what you said he's pragnavadam shabhatsdikatasum agatasum pandita you're talking like a fool not a pandit you may be quoting so many slokas you're giving shastra you're giving logic reasoning and so forth but if you look through it it's all it makes no sense what you're saying Arjun here will give his rationalization why he should not fight. In doing so, he shows good qualities also. What is this principal good quality of Arjun? I said earlier in our discussions that this chapter, in some respects, sheds light on the perfect, what the proper mood of a disciple is. We heard how Duryodhan exhibited the mood of the worst type of disciple, Guru Druha, who's just a burden at best to the Guru. Arjun is a perfect disciple. The principal quality that Arjun shows here is what? He takes shelter of Krishna. He approaches Krishna. The one side of it, of course, is his material attachment. He's approaching Krishna and he wants Krishna to, to agree with him. Misery loves company. So if you can get someone to agree with you, then 
you've got some more strength to say, yeah, there's a good reason not to go forward with this. What better person to get on your side than Krishna? So this is the way the tricky material ego is at work deceiving us even as we approach Guru and Krishna. But a good Guru is very careful to see and instructs us properly as Krishna will do to Arjuna. It's his good quality that he approaches Krishna. But as I say, even in approaching him, he wants him to support him. You agree with me? Get you on my side. Misery loves company. But Krishna won't agree to that. So in the course of his rationalization, he, he will also exhibit the fact that he, he understands Dharma. Atato Brahma Jignasu, Vedanta says. Vedanta Sutra tells us, now is the time to inquire about Brahman. What is that now? Well, Vedanta Sutra is the Uttar Mimamsa. And the Purva Mimamsa is uh, the uh, Sutras of Jaimini, Dharma. It begins, Atato Dharma Jignasu. Human life is now the time to inquire about Dharma, about religion. And if you've passed through all inquiry about religion and applied yourself appropriately, then is the time to inquire about Brahman, about what is spiritual. Religion isn't spiritual, but religion is a gateway to spirituality. If we live a proper religious life and our whole humanity is tempered and colored by consideration of the godly factor, in a very general sense, that brings us in the direction of God and qualifies us then to inquire more deeply into what the scripture is talking about. Scripture is telling us we should be religious, but to be religious means to live in this world in consideration of God. But are we of this world to begin with? That's the question. No is the answer. We're spirit, not matter. We're consciousness. So we should inquire into that. What is the nature of Brahman? So this is the general rule. After Dharma Jignashu comes Brahma Jignashu. Of course, it's also said that if you're fortunate to get the association of a person who personifies Dharma in every respect, Prema Dharma, Dharma Satatvam Nihitam Guhayam, in whose heart the secrets of Dharma are concealed, and that person reveals that to you, a sadhu, then you can immediately inquire about Brahman by his good company. He can create that good fortune. Save us the trouble of inquiring about it. Dharma. But we should know to attain Brahman and to attain Krishna Prem, everything that is in Dharma, we, that will come in us also. All the goodness of that will come in us by a method of bhakti. But if that's not coming in us, then there's something wrong with our bhakti. That is the point. Arjuna will speak in such a way that it's apparent that he understands Dharma very well. So he's, in this way, I'm saying he's a very qualified person for inquiring into spiritual matters. He's an ideal disciple. He's actually submissive to Krishna. It's not because he argues a little bit and questions that he's not submissive. He is submissive. And there's some room for that type of discussion, expressing doubts and saying, well, wait a minute. Now, that doesn't make sense, Gurudev. Does it? And then he explains and so forth. So his principal character is he's approaching Krishna, but we see he has many, many good qualities. At the same time that he's exhibiting many good qualities... What's most important here to note is that he's attached and he's rationalizing his attachment. So it sounds good, and he is good, but he is deceived and deluded by his material attachments. And therefore, they don't make sense. They aren't the words of a learned person. 
Arjuna says, Na chashreyo na pashami hatva sajnam ahave na kankshe vijayam krishna na charajam sukhani cha. Again he says, O Krishna. He says, Na chashreyo. So sreyas means ultimate good. So again, Arjuna had some sense about higher good. He was not simply the kind of person that's only interested in immediate gratification. Preyas and sreyas, two different things. If we want to get sreyas, ultimate good, then we may have to forego preyas, what seems immediately good. It may feel good, but it may not be good for you. So what will you do? If you're a thinker, an intelligent person, you will forego what feels good, forgetting what is actually good. This is our problem. We know what is good. We know it won't be good for us, but we do it anyway. So this is not any religious dogma. This is just the facts of life. Have you ever done something that you know is not in your interest? Can you remember a time when you weren't? <laughs> Would maybe more be appropriate way to frame the question. <laughs> do you understand? This is our predicament. We are doing that. And we should want to solve that problem. This is intelligence. This will take the full measure of your intelligence to do this. Full measure of reasoning. By doing that, you'll go beyond reasoning. Then you can know what is love. Arjuna is interested in the shreyas, ultimate good. Although he's deluded, his good quality is coming out here. He says, well, not just shreyo, I don't see how... How ultimate good can come from this? Killing my own relatives in battle. I have no desire for victory, a kingdom, or the pleasure derived from attaining these things. Actually, Arjuna had a big desire for having a kingdom. He was a chatriya. He was involved in the gambling match. He wanted a kingdom. He was exiled for 12 years. They came back and said, okay, where's our kingdom? And Duryodhana said, I won't give you enough land to stick a pin in. <laughs> then we go to war with you. He wanted a kingdom. He wanted all those things. So it sounds like he doesn't want a kingdom. Isn't he noble? But what he's saying is that I don't want a kingdom because it's going to be at the cost of killing all these people who are me. They're my attachments. They're me. If you give me all them, I'll take a kingdom in a minute. That's what I wanted. But Krishna wants him to attain the kingdom of God, that kingdom. He has to enlighten him with regard to that. He's not as noble as it sounds. He is noble, but he is deluded. Many people think they side with Arjuna over Krishna. Here, they think Krishna's a little a little strong here. I mean, Arjuna's <laughs> ready to walk away from the whole battle. It's not what he's ready to walk away from. He's ready to walk away from his attachments and dealing with them. And Krishna's not going to let him, because Krishna thinks... That's violence. That's violence. Material attachment is violence. Because when we are attached to something material, we objectify it, a thing or a person, and then we utilize it, we manipulate it for our purpose. We don't let it have its own life. That's violent. You understand? Now, we are all involved in that. That's what material life is about. So we should understand that. We're living at the cost of others. And we should reason about it. How can we do such a thing? We should gravitate towards self-sacrificing and understand what wealth there is in that, what gain there is in that, compared to a life of taking 
we should adopt a life of giving. You will get beyond your wildest imagination by a life of giving, by a life of taking. We are taken only. We never get anything. So is it nice to uh, to turn a, a person into just an object and manipulate them for your purpose? But we do that by our attachments. So Krishna's saying, this is violence. Talk to me about violence. This I want you to stop this. Arjuna says, well, I, I don't want to... I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want a kingdom. That's, uh, he's rationalizing in so many ways. His attachments give him the power to rationalize very wonderfully. But Krishna is not a fool. He can understand where this is all coming from. His vision pierces through and he won't let Arjuna get away. That is the kindness of the guru. Won't let us get away. On our own, we'll get away for sure. In other words, our mind, like a thief, after robbing the bank runs down the street saying, Thief! Thief! Somebody robbed the bank. And everybody's coming, Which way did he go? He went that way. This is the mind. We are not competent to deal with it. We are not competent to deal with the whole composite of our false ego. It's very, very subtle, and we've been identified in this way for so long. We need help to dismantle that. It is absolutely, it is difficult, very difficult, with good help. <laughs> We'll speak it without help. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. Arjun had this sense. So he's approaching Krishna. And Krishna's not going to let him deceive himself. He says, Kim no Rajina Govinda, Kim Bogai Jivitenala, Yesha Marte Kangshita no Rajum Bhogasukanicha, Ta Ime Vastita Yudhe, Pranam Chakva Dhananicha, Acharja Pitara Putras Tataiva Chapitamaha, Matulas Swashura putra shala sam pandinastata etanahantumichami natupi madhusudhana. Many nice names of Krishna are mentioned here. Apitrai lokam rajasya heto kimnumahi krite nihata dartarashtranam naka priti sajjanardana. O Govinda, what are kingdom and happiness to us? When those whom we might desire to enjoy these, with whom we might in desire to enjoy these things, teachers, fathers, sons, grandfathers, maternal uncles, father-in-laws, grandsons, brother-in-laws, and other brethren are standing here ready to fight, risking their own kingdoms, happiness, wealth, and lives, I have no desire to kill even those bent on killing me. O Madhusudan, O Janardan, I'm not prepared to fight with the sons of Dhritarashtra, even for the sovereignty of the three worlds, much less an earthly kingdom. Let me read some of the commentary. Govinda is the eternal cowherder, the pastoral friend of nature, God in his private, carefree life. Govinda is also the joy of the Vedas. Arjuna has no desire for an earthly kingdom owing to his relationship with Govinda. So here I am bringing out the inherent good qualities in Arjuna. Arjuna is a devotee, but Krishna has put him into illusion. So the fact that he's a devotee it also comes out, just like we find in Bhagavatam, some nice statements by Hiranyakasipu and Ritrasura. And, and Ritrasura speaks the whole ideal of Ragmarg Bhakti in his uh, speech, and he's a demon, but he's a devotee, so inside. Here, under the divine illusion orchestrated by Krishna, Arjuna offers other reasons as to why he does not want a kingdom, either for himself or for those dear to him who would not 
live through the battle to enjoy one. As Madhusudan, Krishna is the slayer of the illusion of material happiness. As Madhusudan is a name for Krishna. Madhusudan, who is the killer of Madhu. And Madhu, Kaitavan Madhu, isn't it? Two ancient in the mythology demons. Kaitavan Madhu. And they mean uh, like uh, bitter and sweet. Uh, something like that. Of the two sides of material life, both bad. The sweet side of material life, which we find enjoyable, so bad. Why is it bad? Because we become attached to it. And inevitably, we get to suffer from that. At least when it's gone. The more you like it, the worse it is. Because you cannot keep it. Do you understand? You find something very sweet, you like it, very nice. Big problem you have now. You cannot keep it. And that is the law. So how much you'll suffer then when it's gone. So Krishna killed both of these. Kaitav and Madhu. So he's just, this is a nice name. Arjun fears karmic reactions for killing relatives. And in ordinary circumstances, he would be correct. He wants Krishna to take responsibility for his Janardhan, the caretaker and killer of everyone. Furthermore, Arjuna employs Krishna as Madhusudana not to engage him in a war that he perceives to be contrary to Vedic law. For Madhusudana is the killer of Madhu, from whom the Lord recovered the Vedas, reinstating the Vedic path. Arjuna's thinking, you want me to kill my guru and teachers, but where's the example of you doing that? You're the killer of everybody. You take responsibility. You are Janardhan. Here Krishna thinks, but these people are aggressors. And there is no reaction for killing them, to which Arjuna responds in the following verse. Papam ebashrayad asman hatvaitan atitainaha tasman naha bayam hantum tarastran chabhandavan sajanam hi katam hatva sukina shama madhava. O Madhava, by killing these aggressors, we will incur only sin. It is not appropriate for us to kill Pritarastra's sons along with our friends. How can one be happy after destroying one's family? You see, this is so nice. <laughs> the contrast is so great. Family, he has to kill his family. Who would want to do such a thing? As much as you think that it's undesirable, it's how undesirable it is to kill ourself, our ego, to us. It seems so undesirable. This is what is. Re- this is the task. If we're to know our real self, to be free, to know the freedom that we sense, life is about. So Arjun's giving an argument here. He sh- he, in doing so, he shows, as I mentioned earlier, his knowledge of Dharma because he wants to act on the plane of Dharma. Krishna has reasoned in his thoughts. Well, you don't want to kill these people, but they're aggressors. And in the scripture, it says you can kill aggressors, and be sure. Duryodhan was an aggressor. As I said earlier, he tried to defile the wife of Arjuna, to burn the house of Arjuna, to steal his wealth, to poison. Bhima was was attempt to poison. They sent a poison cake and take his land. All types of the listed aggression in Arthashastra were committed against Arjuna. He says, I don't want to fight them. Krishna is saying, well, you can kill aggressors, and you should, for that matter. But Arjuna takes it to a higher level. He says, Dharma artha kama moksha. 
we have four things. Purushartha, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. It really goes, kama is on the low end, since gratification, this is a goal of life. Artha means economic well-being. Dharma means religion and moksha means freedom. So on the scale, dharma is above artha. We may forgo artha, wealth, for dharma. So the injunctions of artha shastra may be foregone. They may be superseded if we embrace dharma shastra. So this is what Arjuna is, how Arjuna is replying. Well, that may be there in artha shastra, but I'm, I'm dharmic. I, I'm going to be religious. Although according to artha shastra, the Vedic political science, one can kill aggressors without incurring a reaction. This does not apply to the situation. For it is against the Dharma Shastra or religious codes to kill one's guru and elders. If in legal decision the political and religious codes differ, the religious codes are to be given preference. The rule is that in the case of a contradiction between two smritis concerning worldly matters, reason prevails. However, the moral and religious code, Dharma Shastra, is more authoritative than that of Artha Shastra. So Arjun had this knowledge. So he's very—he's uh, a, a learned fellow. He's using his knowledge now in, inappropriately, of course, but he had it. Again, his quality, uh, his his adhikar, eligibility for being a disciple is shining through, even in his delusion. Arjun is certainly well versed in Dharma. He knows that in the battle. Not only will the aggressors, the sons of Dhritarashtra, be killed, but others as well. Thus he asks Madhava, the bringer of good fortune, not to bring him misfortune by encouraging him in acts he understands to be irreligious. Before Krishna can answer Arjuna as to why Bhishma and Drona, who certainly understood Dharma, were nonetheless willing to fight, Arjuna answers him in the next verse. In doing so, he stresses the importance of taking pride in family tradition as it helps one to avoid capriciousness. O Janardan, although others gathered here being overwhelmed by greed for a kingdom are blind to the faults of destroying the dynasty, or deceiving friends, why should we who know better engage in this battle? So Arjuna is saying, well, they may be bad, greedy, but why should we be like that? This is a good, good reason. They may go, want to go ahead and fight like this for the, for the kingdom, but why should we? We, we know better. Kula che pranashanti kula dharma sanatana dharma nashti kulam kutsnam adharma bhivavatyuta with the destruction of the dynasty, tradition is destroyed, and remaining family members will be overpowered by re- irreligious practice. Adharmabhivabhat Krishna Pradushanti Kulastriya Strishu Dustashu Varshneya Jayate Varna Sankara O Krishna, when irreligion increases, women are taken advantage of for the corruption of from the corruption of women on descendant of Vishnu rises rises inappropriate mixing, producing unwanted children. Such inappropriate mixing sends the dynasty and its destroyers to hell. Even the ancestors fall, being deprived of oblations of rice and water. Inappropriate mixing destroys social norms and long-standing family traditions. O Janardan, I have heard 
from reliable sources that those whose family traditions and values have been lost live indefinitely in hell. So these are a series of verses about family values. Arjun had a sense of family values, so important to a healthy society. So there's a this is some introduction of the idea of the Varnashram, the social religious system that governed the times. And Arjun's concerns are, are valid in that he feels that if the family tradition is destroyed, then everything will be lost. In times gone by, even in the Western world, people had a greater, less of an identity crisis than what people are faced with today. And, and much more so this is the case in the Vedic society where you have the Varnashram, the caste system, and it's pretty clear when you're born, this is who you are and this is what you do. The material identity problem is solved. The idea behind it, the theory behind that is, well, you solve the material identity crisis right away. You're from this Varna and this is, this is the group you, you associate with and this is what you do for a living. So a lot of energy isn't spent on trying to figure out who I am materially. And you're grounded in a, in a material identity. And that, that is in consideration of your physio-psychological makeup and so forth. And there was strict breeding at the time. Very strict breed, breeding pedigrees of, of humans. And so the tendencies were more fixed than in our times. And there were more definite groups with a definite psychology and propensity to act. And the virtue of this was thought to be, as I said, in one sense, that, well, your material identity is, it's settled. So you haven't got to wander around on Hate Street and figure out who you are, <laughs> what you are, why you're here, uh, w- what to do, and enter into many different relationships and, and be disappointed and frustrated and have a midlife crisis at, at 40 and again wonder, what am I? All this was worked out. And the theory, of course, was, well, having worked this out right away from birth and no energy having to be spent on that, you have energy to think about what you are in, in a deeper sense and pursue, in the context of that religiously ordained, socially ordained duty, your spiritual identity. Of course... To be fair, we have to stress that there's also a problem, there can be a problem with this, and that is that we become really identified with that material identity, more so than people are today. Today they have an identity crisis, it's true, we, uh, maybe up until you're 50 even, people are sometimes trying to sort out. Adolescence goes for a long, a long time, energy spent on, on this. But at the same time, they're not attached to any particular as much to any particular identity and more free to perhaps take a leap in the spiritual direction. Of course, they may leap in the spiritual direction prematurely or... But, but Nardmuni has said, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? Yeah. Go for it, he said. Leap and fall. You're better off. You're that much further along having done so. So that spiritual call is very bold and very challenging, and uh, it could be reasoned that in the modern society there's more more facility from another angle of vision for leaping in that. real point is that spiritual 
pursuit is pertinent at all times. If we can settle our material identity crisis and pursue spiritual life, that is the ideal of the Vedas through religious life. Go gradually and step by step and systematically approach the thing. But if a great sadhu comes along in your life and just changes the equation by his association, then who can complain with that? That's what Prabhupada did. Therefore, as I said earlier, no dharma jignasu, no brahma jignasu, rasa jignasu. Immediately we are coming to that plane because of catching a rasika like Prabhupada who came, changed the destiny by that company, raised the level of the inquiry and interest and necessity by his association. So this is the old system, a system that is not possible to put in place today. Where's the king? Hmm? Who will be the king? Varnashram. Difficult to, to sort that out. Mahaprabhu is given it. Krishna Sankirtan. We can all unite on this. Krishna Nam. But it is fact that uh, much time is spent trying to find our material identity. Material identity crisis is, is there. Well, that can be problematic. It may, it may be looked at as being advantageous. But here, in the context of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is, Arjuna is speaking about with regard to this system. And he's saying appropriately, every, this is our whole social structure. So if this is tampered with, everything will be lost. The social structure supporting the whole society and supporting, providing a foundation from which we can look in the spiritual direction and our ultimate prospect. So if I kill all these people here, he says in particular, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen to women? And how important are women? Actually, ironically, in this section, Arjuna is stressing the value, the importance of women. In the Vedic society, in many respects, the whole society revolved around mothers. Even today, although it's, everything is, is distorted and whatnot, in India, I'll give you a secret. If you ever want to get somewhere in a hurry and go to the front of the line, just say, mother, mother sick, mother ill, something like mother dying. <laughs> front of the line, go. No ticket necessary. Get on the train. If you can convince somebody your mother is sick, everything stops. Mother sick, go. You know the story of uh, Pujapad Keshav Maharaj. Is it a relative? Yes, I think. He was living in a, in a Bhaktisiddhan Sarsri Thakur's company, personally, and the news came from home, mother sick, mother dying. So he knew, if I go home on her deathbed, mother will ask me, one thing, and I cannot refuse. What will that be? You please marry. Shridhar told, same thing happened to him with regard to his father. His father became sick and was dying. He went to him on his deathbed, and he was, uh, Shridhar was the eldest son. And uh, he said, I knew, father will ask me to marry. I, I was, I did not want to go. I could, but I could not not go with my father on his deathbed. And I could not lie to him because I never ever told a lie. This is my principle, never to, never to speak a lie. My father knew, this was my father's anxiety. He felt, son is not yet married, my life is not complete. And Arjun's bringing this up here too, according to the system of the times. If a son's not married, then there's no grandson, and the family's not continued. If father doesn't get a son, that's a big, bigger problem. Without a son, no um, shraddha ceremony, no shraddha, big problem. Vashraddha means that in the Varnashram system, when the father and mother pass, 
then they become ancestors. Priti Lok means the Lok of Yamaraj, but ancestors means they may go anywhere, as people do. When they die, they may go to heaven, they may go to hell, they may take birth again, and as animals, wherever they take birth. And by performing the Shraddha ceremony properly, after the death, offering the prasad, especially the Vishnu prasad, to a Brahmana, on behalf of the ancestors, their life in the afterlife becomes easier. If they've taken birth as an animal, they find an easy way to get food or to make their way, to avoid danger. Their, li- their, their life is improved. If they're in hell, they get out quicker. So this is very important. <laughs> <laughs> the Keshu Maharaj, when he heard his mother was sick on the deathbed, news was given to Guru Maharaj, Prabhupada Bhakti Thakur, and Keshu Maharaj, as a brahmachari, he knew, if Guru Maharaj here, he would say, well, go, you must go. Mother is dying, you must go. Guru Maharaj didn't say, your mother is Maya. It's a material attachment. Don't go there. So somehow we have to find some proper balance. Be an intelligent person. He knew, if I go, mother will ask me to marry. If the last request on the deathbed of the mother, how can I refuse? I'll have to marry. If I marry, I'll have to live outside of the mission. And I'm attached to living right in the company of Guru Maharaj. So he hid under a basket. He hid himself <laughs> under a basket. Hmm? No one could find him. And he didn't go. And he was found under the basket also. And Saraswati thought, what are you doing under the basket? He's asking him. He told. Still, he said, you should have gone. But obviously he was charmed. Bhakti said, Saraswati Thakur, by the desire of... Keshav Marsh to remain in the mission. He later became Keshav Marsh, took sannyas for Bhakti Siddhanta So women, anyway, motherhood, the position of the woman in the society is very, very glorious in the Vedic culture. Practically the man was like, uh, the, the whole household ran around, orbited around mother, and, and the whole f- society orbits around the family unit. It is the microcosm of the macrocosm of the society. So if it's healthy, the society will be healthy. So Arjuna's concerned about all these things. Now, of course, Arjuna, Krishna is going to tell him to, he's, he's going to shatter these arguments in one verse in the next chapter. But later on in the Gita, Krishna also extols the virtues of family. So he's not against that. But that's not what Arjuna's really all about here, again. Arjuna's rationalizing his material attachments, that's all. It sounds good, and there's much to learn from it, value. But in terms of the circumstance, there's no value. He's simply avoiding the task at hand, slaying his material attachments in the form of the whole army and thereby dismantling himself from his material sense of identity and finding his real self. We were discussing a little bit earlier and we ended the note before we started the class on the discussion of the uh, how there is relativity mixed into the message of the Absolute when it descends, how it adopts the uh, cultural and social climate that it appears within and speaks in the language of that and takes into consideration the arguments and thoughts of the time, challenging it to some extent, but not entirely. After all, for example, Mahaprabhu's mission did not challenge everything in the society, even the wrongs. Thakur Haridas, for example, was fully qualified to have darshan of Jagannath. But the social climate, social religious climate, was such that he was from a Muslim birth, therefore he couldn't enter. Mahaprabhu didn't challenge it. Of course, Mahaprabhu came and gave him darshan himself every day. But he didn't entirely go against uh, everything in, in the society. For one sense, in one sense, because, well, you can only go so far. If 
you're going to create a revolution, you have to know what you can what you can do and what you can't. And, and Mahaprabhu was very wise. Just if we, if we analyze this from an ordinary point of view, for choosing Haridas Thakur as he did, Rup Sanatan, they were ministers, very cultured, learned men. They knew the ways of politics. They could mix and intermingle and, and so forth. Therefore, Sanatan advised Mahaprabhu, don't go to Vrindavan with a big group. There's a spiritual reason for that advice and there's an external reason for the advice. Externally, because you go there with a big group, there's a Muslim area there. If you go with a whole flock of millions of people, it's going to be a problem. Mahaprabhu took his advice. So he, my point is, there could be no greater dispensation of divinity than Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Still, his message and his person mixed with the climate of the times and spoke his message through the language of the people and the consideration of the values of the times and, and so forth. So the spiritual descent is going to come to us through a particular a, a cultural filter. We have to filter out, as times pass, what was a cultural filter, and historical, and, uh, and what was essential in that message. So this came up because, uh, while we were talking about that subject, and um, someone had written me on the Sangha that, um, how could I say that women weren't less intelligent than men when, when Prabhupada had, had said it? In a kind of a challenging way, he said, show me in where Prabhupada has said that women are less, more intelligent than men, or as intelligent as men. He knows, of course, Prabhupada said many times, women and women are less intelligent. So I said, first of all, this statement is not absolute. Two people sent me back a message. They said, I cannot accept your, your statement. The meaning of this statement is this. I said, it's not absolute, therefore it, re- it requires that it be interpreted consideration of time and circumstances and the cultural filter through which Prabhupada was presenting it to them. In other words, he appeared in a particular cultural context and he got certain information about certain things. We, we were hearing earlier how Prabhupada used to read the back of the Jehovah Witness booklet called Awake, which gave information about how bad the world was in society. I mean, he was living in India. Try to imagine, even today living in India, for some people, it's difficult to find out what's going on in the world. What to speak of a century past, living in India, and Prabhupada's wondering, what are they like in America? It's like wondering, what do people do on the moon? What are they like up there? How do they think? We live now with a glut of information, and we are used to having that as our, at our disposal. But there are people in the world even today that don't have all that information. So they make determinations about relative matters based on information that they do have. Prabhupada did the same thing. He was told in school, women only have a 32-ounce brain. Men have a 64-ounce brain. Must be. This is a guy from the West, he's telling me this, from the, from Britain. Britain was the leading country of the world. So Prabhupada said, yeah. says in the Bhagavad Gita, every time, 99.9% of the time, that Prabhupada said women are less intelligent, he did so in the context of quoting one of two verses. Bhagavad Gita Mami Patya Vapashita Yepisu Papayona Astyo Vashastatastras Tapianti Paramvatim. Where Krishna classifies women along with Sudras and um, Vaishas, Papayona. And other verse uh, where it is mentioned, Sri Sudhudidubandunam, in relation to Mahabharat. That Mahabharata was written for the Sri Sudra Dvijabandhu, these sections of society. Stories to make it easier to understand. If we want to understand what he was talking about, we have to understand what those verses 
really say. Before I get to that, these fellows said, we don't agree with you. What Prabhupada's really saying here is, and then they went on to interpret it in a particular way. But my principal point was this. This statement is not absolute. It has to be qualified. While disagreeing with me, they began to qualify the statement themselves by saying, well, what he really meant is women are generally less intelligent than men. Not in all circumstances, one said. Another said, really what he means here is that women are as intelligent as men materially, but they're not very capable of understanding spiritual things. So anyway, I have my own interpretation of what he meant. But my point, they validated in that it's not absolute, just on its face. If we take it on its face, women are less intelligent than men. There's no woman that's more intelligent than any man. So even the, the sexist people who identify with that statement of Prabhupada based on their own misconceptions and want to use Prabhupada <laughs> to support their ego in the name of saying they're chased to Prabhupada and following what he says, and they're his true followers, even they agree the statement's not absolute. You have to somehow adjust it. But we should adjust it properly, not by making up some concoction that, uh, about this thing. Look at the verses themselves. What do the commentators say? In Bhagavad Gita verse I quoted, the idea is that in the Vedic culture, the society took advantage of the affectionate nature of women to foster motherhood and saw to it at that time that women were preoccupied with what they considered was important. Men's nature was not as naturally affectionate to take care of a, a little baby. Mothers naturally affectionate to nurse the child and so forth. And therefore, women didn't study the Vedas. So what that verse in Bhagavad Gita is saying is that even the people who don't study the Vedas who don't have the opportunity to study the Vedas, they can also attain me, Krishna says. It's not saying that women are inherently less intelligent. Because at the time they didn't study the Vedas, which is if you do, makes you more, have greater prospect for attaining the Supreme, because that's what it's talking about. Therefore, the next verse he says, what well, speak then of the Brahmins, who study the Vedas, know these things, certainly they attain me. But even those that don't, they attain me, if they take shelter of me. They're successful. And same thing with the other verse. This is the idea. It's not saying that women are inherently less intelligent. And of course we have a different society today where women are educated, which is the best form of protection. Prabhupada advocated protection of women. So if women are educated, then they, they, they make a fuss and say that people shouldn't harass them and so forth and take people to court over that. And If women need protection, then... Who are those people they need protection from? Those are the ones to watch out, out for. So, anyway, it just so happens that one of the verses in this section is a real stumbling block for a number of uh, the fairer sex, if that's an appropriate term anymore, I don't know. But And so I've talked about it uh, a little differently. Although it's certainly true that when irreligion increases, women can be taken advantage of. In today's world, men can also be taken advantage of. Women can take advantage of men. Inappropriate mixing between men and women does not does often produce unwanted children. This section of the Gita extols the virtues of family life, that which is vital to a healthy society. 
The argument raised here by Arjuna is one of the many arguments he raises in this chapter based on religious but nonetheless material considerations. He raises them to justify not doing Krishna's bidding. All of these arguments are refuted by Krishna when he takes the discussion to the level of the soul in the second chapter. However, Krishna expresses his own concern for family values in chapter 3, 324. So Arjuna says now, alas, how has it happened that we are prepared to commit such a great evil as killing our own kinsmen out of greed for royal pleasures? It would be better for the sons of Dhritarashtra, weapons in hand, to kill me in battle, unarmed and unresisting. So here in verse 45, it's telling that uh, what Arjuna's really concerned about is me, himself, in all of this. It sounds very noble, but he's really only concerned about his self, and his self means that material identity is the, that is the composite of his material attachments. Let me read the last verse now. We're concluding this this chapter. Sanjay Uvacha, evam uktvarjuna sanke rato pasta upabishat. Vistrija sa sharam chapam shoka sambhignamanasa. Sanjay said, having thus spoken, Arjuna sat down on his chariot and cast aside his bow and arrows, his heart overcome with grief. Vishada yoga. So this is the grief, the despair of Arjuna. Arjuna's grief is rooted in material attachment, his rationale for not fighting, beginning with verse 28 and concluding in verse 45. As reasonable as it seems is a product of his attachment, and this attachment is what Krishna wants him to slay. Grief and despair are born of material attachment. Arjuna's attachment is so powerful that it has caused this otherwise great warrior to cast aside his weapons. Arjuna's material identity is a product of his attachment to his family members. Slaying them, he sees no prospect in life because his sense of self is relative to their existence. This fleeting superficial identity that changes as the people and things one considers his own prove to be otherwise must be dismantled in order for one's authentic self to emerge. Krishna wants Arjuna to know his eternal self that outlives his identity based on his present attachments. All spiritual practitioners are first and foremost faced with this challenge. Thus, its importance is brought to light here in the first chapter. The Bhagavad Gita is about slaying one's material attachments. Most people who read it skip over this important step and argue over the significance of the balance of the text. However, it should be understood that the challenge of spiritual life requires that we slay our material ego, and from then on, like a boat that has pulled up its anchor, we can successfully sail the sea of our spiritual potential. So, any question? Yes. Arjuna's arguments about protecting the protection of women, protection of family, avoidance of Varnashankara and so forth. Then there was a war and all these Kshatriyas were killed and everything. What, um, did it really, did Arjuna's prediction, dire predictions really come true? Well, look at the society today. <laughs> family <laughs> traditions are destroyed. <laughs> but do you have any comment about, about that? And, why is it not a good argument, then? My answer is not really as funny as it seems. I mean, it's, this is the beginning of the Kali Yuga. This is the last thing, practically, in terms of Krishna's establishing Dharma before the Kali Yuga comes. Short of that, I don't have an answer, but 
at the end, the Bhagavad Gita was to Krishna himself. He he, he goes to Braj in his mind. He, he can't. He's got Arjuna doing the the last part of his work for establishing Dharma by slaying all the oppressors of of Dharma. But um, then Krishna leaves. Then Kali Yuga comes. So it could be said that it was uh, was good reasoning. But of course, with Kali Yuga coming, such good fortune comes as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance. Why it's not a good argument, it is a good argument, actually, but why it's not a good argument is because it's a rationalization produced by the force of his attachment. Because what our, what Krishna wanted him to do was, as I say, not to kill his family members, but what they represented. If Arjuna had said, well, okay, I understand, and, and he, he, he became a sannyasi, that would have been acceptable in the true sense of the term. If he... Arjun, Krishna wants Arjuna to understand who he is, what he is, what are the material attachments that are holding him back from knowing himself, and so forth. That's what he's asking him to slay. And therefore, his resistance and his arguments, however valid they may be on some level, are, are invalid. That's why Krishna, as I say, immediately takes it to the level of the soul in the next chapter and calls him a fool. Otherwise, relatively speaking, it is a good argument. But Krishna, we can say this, was more concerned with the deliverance of one soul, even at the cost of the whole society. If one soul can be liberated, at whatever cost, it's worth it.